the earth a habitat for humanity, a habitat for humanity. And in order to bring it to a place of habitability, from a state of formlessness that we saw in Genesis 1, verse 2, you will remember that, that we found the, the, the earth in a state of formlessness, void, it was empty. And God wanted to fill the earth with his people, with people made in his image. And in order to do that, he had to bring it from that state of formlessness to a state where it could be habitable. It needed the essentials for life, and those essentials needed to be present on the surface of the earth. And so first in day one, what did God do? We needed light. We needed light to live. And so God said, let there be light. And there was light. And that light pierced the darkness that was over the deep, over the home, over the face of the deep and the waters. And that darkness pierced all the way to the surface of the earth. Then in day two, we found out that we needed, in terms of having a, habit, a habitat for humanity, we needed two other things besides light. We needed a breathable atmosphere and we needed a water cycle. So what did God do on day two? He set a firmament in the midst of the waters and he separated the waters from the waters. The waters from above the firmament to the waters below the firmament. And in setting that firmament, he made possible two important things. A breathable atmosphere and a water cycle that would be the very thing that would give a life-giving source to all life on planet Earth. Amen? And then we come to day three. And we're going to see that God is continuing to add to the earth the things that are life's essentials. Life's essentials. So we're going to look at day three, and we're going to see that two things come about on day three. Dry land and basically food for lack of a better way to put it, food. So dry land and food. And we need both of those to be human beings walking on the earth and existing on this earth. And so we're going to take a look at day three. We, this is what we see in day three. He brings about more of life's essentials. So let's dive into the text. First, God makes dry land. He makes dry land. Let's pick it up, verse nine. It says this, Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens... Be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, so the evening and the morning were the third day. So we're looking at the third day, the week of creation. And day three begins with God making dry land. He makes dry land. The text says it this way, God made dry land appear. And the, the, I believe there was, there was earth, there was stuff, there was stuff of the crust of the earth under the waters. And so at this point, the dry land isn't appearing out of thin air. It's, it's under there. It's under the surface of the waters, but he's going to make it appear. He's going to bring that dry land kind of to the surface and create the land masses, the continents, so on and so forth. So we see on day three, what does God do? He makes real estate. 
Real estate, amen? Yeah, yeah, don't you love real estate? That's what, God loves real estate, and it's very important to God. Real estate is very important. In fact, he gave his people a specific plot of land on this real estate that he created, and so don't make light and small of these things because they're very important. Remember when I said that everything that happens in the creation is about, it was founded in the foundation of everything that's happening in your life? It's true because you're living on a piece of real estate somewhere. You may not own it, you may rent it, but you're living on a piece of real estate. And that's what God did on day three. He made real estate. Now there's an old real estate saying, I actually had my realtor license for, for a little while until I no longer did the continuing education that you have to do to keep it up, and then it just, you know, became void, null and void. But anyways, <laughs> um, there's an old real estate saying, and it is this, they're not making any more of it. They're not making any more of it. Well, this isn't totally true. I want to debunk. I want to debunk the, the old saying that they're not making any more real estate because right now as we speak, Hawaii is growing in square footage. Just go and look and Google on the Kilauea volcano and you can see the, the, the land mass of Hawaii is expanding and so there's more land being created even now. And man is involved in creating real estate. Yeah, go to Dubai and they have created their own islands. They've got their Palm Jumura and the world. You can buy your own little island that they made and brought up from the, the sea. So real estate. This is what God made to appear on day three. But what we see here is where God made it appear, and some of this was probably how some of that land was create, is being created today, volcanic. I believe you, you had volcanic activity. Um, you had also uh, upward shifting of the crust of the earth. You had you had these upward shifts that brought the, the crust of the earth you know, through the waters and created the continents. And so you had volcanic activity, you had upward shift of the crust. Now, in science, if you study science and you go into the classroom and look at you know, some of the theories that are being uh, taught, uh, you have this theory that's actually called Pangea, you pronounce it, I don't know how you pronounce it, Pangea is what it looks like. It's actually probably Pangea because it's from two root words, pan meaning all, gaea meaning the earth. And it's all, it was all the earth. And what it is, it's a theory about the fact that there was this supercontinent, this one massive landmass that kind of came up and appeared. And then from that, you had uh, that broken apart and, and going out and shifting and creating um, the different land masses as we know them today, the, the continents. And so this is one theory. It's basically, again, this actually would have come about due to land rifting or shifting, shifting of that crust, and also what's called tectonic plate shift. And so this is all the stuff that's happening. Now, if I, as soon as I said the word Pangea, you might say, well, I don't know about all that because doesn't it say when you study Pangea that it was like 175 billion years ago? And what about that, pastor? What do you think? Well, it's, it depends. We have to go back to the first study in Genesis, right? When I asked the question, how old is the earth? How old is the universe? 
And then I said, wait a second, stop before you answer. How old does the Bible say that the universe is? How old does the Bible say? And I answered and I said that the Bible doesn't tell us how old the universe is. It does not tell us how old the earth is. You can probably track back and track and give a general dating on human civilization on the earth or known human civilization, but we just simply don't know how old the universe is or how old the, the, the earth is. And so with that being the case, I don't necessarily have a problem with the theory, at least in part, of Pangea. Because I don't know exactly how God made this land appear. There was water covering the surface of the earth. And this says, this tells me that God brought dry land and brought it up through the, through the waters that were under the heavens. So you had the waters that were under the heavens. And this is in reference to the split of those waters by the firmament. So you have waters under the heavens over the surface of the earth. And God brought and made dry land to appear. So I would say this way. Depending upon who you talk to, that's probably, you know, going to be, yeah, in terms of who calls you on the phone, you know, and, and ask them how old the earth is. How old do you, yeah, just go ahead right now, answer and ask, how old is the earth? Depending upon who you ask, that's going to determine what type of an answer that you get. Now, if you, if you ask a young earth creationist, they're going to give you an answer that's based upon that. If you ask an old earth creationist, they're going to give you uh, uh, an answer that's based upon that. Now, the young earth, if you ask the young earth guy, and you say, now, it seems to me that it's a week, it seems to me that it's seven days of creation, and what gives here? You know, what's happening? Why are you saying that it could possibly be longer, or the earth could be older than that? And one of the things that you will get, uh, one of the rationales that you will get from a young earth creationist is that they will say, well, don't you believe that God could, you know, do all this in seven 24-hour periods? And I think a good answer from the old earth creationist is this. Yes. And not only do I believe he could do it in seven 24-hour periods, I believe he could do it in one millisecond. In one millisecond, everything that we read in Genesis 1 and 2, he could have done, boom, it's all done. So what I submit to you is that's kind of a, it's really, it sounds like a good point, but in the end, it's not a good point. Because even the point that people make of looking at the miracles, all those were mostly instantaneous miracles, right? So if God God can do anything he wants, he's all powerful, he could have made it all appear in one millisecond, totally complete, all the way, there's Adam and Eve and everything's good and there's the tree. And they're eating apples and it's it's a great thing, right? No. Okay, so I don't think it's the issue of, of, of God's power, of the time. And so for that reason, I don't necessarily believe that a Christian needs to box themselves in to, you know, one particular view or whatever on that. Now, again, as I pointed out, about a month ago before Christmas when we were last talking about Genesis, I also don't believe that the Bible, as it's stated and as it reads, concords perfectly with what modern science tells us. So I'm not in the concordance camp where science and the Bible totally concord. Now, what do you mean by that? 
I mean, the Bible says things that don't concord with science, and we're going to find out in the end which one was right. And I'm going to take my money and place it on the Bible. Amen? Because science has been wrong historically a lot of times. But to my knowledge, the Bible has never failed. Amen? It's the perfect word of God. So I'm going to, I'm going to believe on that. So God's capable of doing anything and everything, and I don't think he even needs a time frame to do it. I think the week of creation gives us kind of a, a kind of a, a, a plan of action in the way that he did it. So it's not how long did it take. That's not the proper question. A better question is, how did he actually do it? How did he actually do it? And so I think we're getting to that. So I don't necessarily have a problem with a theory like Pangea or something like that. All I know is what the Bible says is there's water over the, the crust of the earth, and now there's land coming up through the waters and appearing and making the continents where ultimately animals and human beings are going to live and reside. And what did God, what was God's response when this all was complete, this particular process? Look down at the end of verse 10, it says, and God saw that it was good, that it was good. Now, I want to take a, just a moment to just talk about that for a second, the whole thing where God said he saw that it was good. God saw these things as he's making them, and he says, that's good, that's good. And it is the Hebrew word tov, and it means good, pleasant, it's what's right, it's what's good. It's actually a lot of things in the, in the Hebrew, but tov, it's, it's good, it's pleasant, it's right. And so God saw this, and he's bringing this all about, and it's good. God moves on, and we move on in verse 11. God makes the vegetation appear on the earth, and the trees, the fruit trees specifically. Verse 11 says this, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. So in these verses, God then made the vegetation. We have dry land, and the next thing we're going to have is vegetation coming up on the earth. So we're going to have grasses, all kinds of grasses, the herbs, and trees of all kinds, and fruit, and specifically what zeroes in here is fruit trees, fruiting trees. Um, and so there's all kinds of vegetation that we see that's appearing on the earth. It's coming forth from the ground. God is making this so, okay? But it seems if you kind of take, if you read this and you've probably read this a bunch of times in your life and you said, well, yeah, this is day three. This is where God made the earth and he made all the vegetation, the grass and all the trees and he made that to appear. But if you kind of zero in on the list, it seems to be a, a kind of a specific list. It's a specific list because this is mostly talking about stuff that's actually going to be food. It's grasses, it's herbs, and it's fruiting trees. Notice it doesn't really talk about all kinds of other trees. There's other trees that aren't necessarily fruit trees, but here we're specifically told that it's fruit trees. So as I look at this, it seems to me, it seems to me that God is showing us that what's happening is on day three, he's making the land come up, he's making the land appear, and he's making possible what is going to be the food supply, the early food supply on, on the earth, the grasses 
and trees are going to be food for animals and these herbs and fruiting trees will produce food for all of the animal kingdom and mankind. So we see the earth, the dry land being brought up and then all, all the grass, the vegetation, the fruiting trees brought forth from the earth specifically for the purpose of food, of food. Why? Why is, why is it being presented to us like this? Because food is essential for life. And remember, when you look at the week of creation, what is the goal? What is the end goal? The end goal is that he's bringing the earth from a state of formlessness to a state where it's going to be filled with the, the, the land's going to be filled with creeping creatures and the rivers and the waters are going to teem with all kinds of creatures. And then the land is going to have animals and ultimately the crowning piece of creation week, which is mankind, made in the image of God. And so we've got all this vegetation coming forth, this food. Why? Because food is essential for life. How many of you like food? Amen? Amen? Remember what I told you. (laughs) Remember what I told you. Everything that's laid down in Genesis is the foundation for everything that's going on in your life. And how many ate today? Amen? See, so I was right. I was right when I told you that because that's what we're talking about right now. Now, how many like Chick-fil-A? How many are Chick-fil-A fans? Yeah, yeah, you can't get enough of the chick. Um, they, you know, we got one up here on Wickham Road at 95 and they can't build drive throughs fast enough to keep, to, to service all the people. I think one day we're going to ride by there and they're going to have like, you know, it's going to be a double decker drive through you know, because they don't, they can't go out unless they move the Holiday Inn out or whatever. I don't know what they're going to do. But the founder of Chick-fil-A is Truett Caffey. And if you go to a Chick-fil-A and you sit down in a Chick-fil-A, And I remember when I first saw this, because I was sitting in a Chick-fil-A eating my chicken sandwich with the pickle and the whole thing and the waffle fries and the Polynesian sauce and the whole, the whole, the whole nine yards, amen, the whole bit. I looked up on the wall and I saw a quote from Truett Cathy. And it says this, you'll see it up on the screen. Food is essential to life, therefore make it good, amen? Food is essential to life, Therefore, make it good. And I, I want to just tell you tonight, I wholeheartedly endorse this statement. Amen? Yeah. Food is essential to life. Therefore, making, make it good. I agree. I love food, and food should be good. Now, how do you make food good? Well, there's this little thing called the culinary arts, right? The culinary arts. Guys and gals go off to these institutes where they learn how to do all this fancy stuff with food. And there's all kinds of incredible, fancy, fancy stuff that you can do with food. And it's not just pretty to the eye, it tastes awesome. It tastes great. And um, there's all kinds of things that you can do with food to make it great. There's all kinds of ways that you can prepare food. You can take a simple item and you can fix it up. Just many, many, many different ways. You say, Charles, what are you talking about? Well, just think about Bubba. Bubba from Forrest Gump, he told us all the ways that you could do shrimp, right? <laughs> so, so just with shrimp, there's a tremendous amount of things that you can do with food. The culinary arts, it's amazing. And in preparing food, it was discovered that the use of spices and herbs became instrumental 
in making food great, making food taste great. Spice, spice. So you have food, and then not only did God give us food, but he gave us spice. Amen? Now, I did a little research on spices, and I have to admit, before this message and before preparing for it, I had never really done any actual study on spices. Amen? I never. No, no, there was no reason that has presented itself before this week for me to do a study on spices. But I just, you know, God created herbs on day three. And so I said, okay, God, this is what your word says, so I'm going to dive in here and look at what this is all about. A spice is a seed, a fruit, a root, a bark, and other plant substance primarily used for flavoring, coloring, or preserving food. Spices are distinguished from herbs, which are the leaves. So you have the, you have the bark and the root and all that, and so they, they ground up the spice, and then you have the herbs. So you have spices and herbs, and they're all used in this, this culinary process to make food great, right? So my next, so when I was talking about spices and herbs, I was thinking, okay, I'm one of these inquisitive people. So I'm talking about spices. I want to know how many spices there are. How many spices are there? Does anybody know? Anybody have an idea? You want to take a stab at it? Anybody want to just take a... (laughs) He shot the moon on that one, yeah. To the best that I can come up with from my research, there are about 350 types of spices. About 350. And just off by a couple hundred thousand. (laughs) Now, listen. Another interesting fact about spices is that 75 to 80% of the spices that you probably have in your kitchen right now, 75 to 80% came from India. India. India is like kind of the spice capital of the world. I mean, they love their spices down there. Have you had Indian food? Yeah. Some curry chicken, you get some curry chicken going and you get this stuff going. I mean, it is like good. Spices bring out the flavor of of food. And there's a saying about life. Variety is the spice of life. And spice is the variety of food. Amen? So God gave us spice. He gave us what brought about the food, and he took care to give us everything else that was going to make it great. And um, I'm, for one, you know, you got to take a little advice from Emeril Lagazzi, <laughs> right? Amen? You got to take a little advice from Emeril Lagazzi. You got to throw a little spice in there, and you got to just bam, right? And kick it up a notch, right? And I think it's a godly thing. I think it's a godly <laughs> thing because... Because right here, he made spices, and he made herbs, and he brought forth the food on the face of the earth. Amen? Amen. Food is essential, and so you might as well make it good. Tove, good. Now, among these grasses that came forth from the earth on day three, it says grasses, right? Look at that, verse 11. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass. Now, depending upon... What you've been involved in in your life, your mind might go in different directions there, okay? But let me just bring you back. Let me just bring you back, okay, to a particular kind of grass 
that came forth as a result of day three. Amen? It's known as wheat. It's a kind of grass that came forth. It's a stalk. It's a kind of a grass. I mean, it's this green stuff that grows up, and then, of course, it has this big head on it, and then it, it grows up to maturity, and it has this, this head of, of the grain of the wheat on it. So day three, grasses came up, wheat came up. Wheat came up on day three. Sometime on day three, wheat came up, amen? And someone came along and took the head of wheat and they pounded it and they ground it into a flour. And they took that flour and they baked it. They kneaded it into a dough and they put it in an oven and they baked it. And it became bread. Bread. So wouldn't you know it, bread came about as of what directly came forth on day three. Amen? Bread. You know, and I think you could throw in all kinds of other stuff into that category. You know, donuts and all, you know, yeah. So food is essential for life and our survival. And just going back through the essentials very quickly. We needed light. God said, let there be light. We needed a breathable air, so God created an atmosphere by inserting a firmament into the midst of the waters. And we had an atmosphere with a breathable atmosphere, air, and we had a water cycle that was going to produce a fresh water cycle for the the creatures that were going to be on the earth. And then we needed a place to actually live, and so God allowed the earth, the, the dry land, to appear. And then we were going to need some food. And so God brought forth the grasses and the herbs and the fruiting trees so that we would have food to eat. And he brought all this about. Brought food into our life because it was essential. Now, I want to take you to the life of Jesus. After Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, he was baptized in chapter 3. If you turn the page to Matthew chapter 4, he was led out into the wilderness on a 40-day fast. See, food is essential, but you can fast from it for a little while, but not too long. I think if you go much past 40 days, you're you're heading into jeopardy. But Jesus was on a fast after his baptism for 40 days. He was in the wilderness. And the Bible tells us there in Matthew chapter 3 that here he is on this fast, and he undergoes the temptation of the enemy. It says specifically the devil, the enemy, the tempter. The tempter came to him. And and the devil knew that he was on a fast, an extended fast. So he knew that Jesus, being fully human, he knew that Jesus was in, in that state where he was hungry. He was hungry. Now what does... What does the devil say to him? You'll see it up on the screen. The devil said to him, Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. If you're the Son of God, if you're all-powerful, I know you're on a fast and you're hungry and you need some bread. 
So if you are, prove it to me and make these stones become bread. Now, Jesus could have done it, right? Just like he could have made all the earth in a millisecond, he could have done it. Just how he did all the, a lot of the other miracles that he did in an instant, he could have, in an instant, he could have made a loaf of bread for himself. And how great would that have been? But Jesus' answer to the devil is what is profound for us as human beings. It's the answer that he gave. In the very next verse, in Matthew 4, 4, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying that man should not live by bread. He's saying man should not live by bread alone. Certainly, you're going to need food. And God made that possible by what he did on day three of creation week but here he is fast forwarding that amount of time thousands of years to his, where his son comes into the earth he's being tempted he's gone out he's been baptized he's in the desert he's on a 40-day fast the devil is tempting him make this stone into a loaf of bread he says man shall not live by bread alone now of course he's quoting from deuteronomy and we know this He's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What we get from Jesus' response is this, that while bread and specifically food is essential for life, for us as human beings, there is ultimately something more essential than physical food. We need the word of God. We need the word of God. The word of God Believe it or not, if you study your Bible, the word of God is called food in the Bible. Amen. We come to it and the word of God is called food in the Bible. And we are to consume the word like food because we're not just physical people. What God was bringing forth on the earth was not just human beings in physical form, but he's bringing forth spiritual people, spiritual people on the earth. So while they will need the physical food that God allowed to be brought forth by what he did on day three, there's something more that that soul needs. And it's a spiritual food. And it's the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The word of God is called food. It's compared to milk. It's compared to meat. It's, a, it's the milk of the word. When we are beginning in faith, we are, we are to feed on the milk of the word, the gospel, the good news, that, that message of grace and that message of, of reconciliation to the Lord. And when we are to mature, we are to consume the meat of the word. We aren't to settle just for the elementary things. Just like we outgrew Gerber food. Amen. Praise the Lord. I mean, because I look at some of these babies eating like the squash and stuff. And we had friends that fed their kids. Like, you know, we all had, we all bought the little cans, canisters and whatever, stacked them up on the counter. And we had friends that fed their baby so much squash she was orange. She was literally orange. But we got, you got to grow out of the elementary stuff. And you got to grow into the meat of the word. Amen? The problem is that some people don't, they don't even receive the milk of the word. They don't even receive the milk of the word, much less the meat of the word. 
and they look at the milk of the word and they, they, they cast an eye to it and say, well, I don't need that. I don't need that in my life. I don't even need the milk, the gospel, the good news. I don't need the truth of the gospel that Jesus came to this earth to give his life so that you could be free, so that you could be set free in your life and saved and on your way to heaven to be with him forever and ever and ever. They say, I don't need it. And Jesus is saying, look, man shall not live by just as much as you needed a meal today. You need this more. You need the milk and the meat of the word more in your life. And I'm here to tell you, and I'm here to tell you, as someone sent by God, to tell you tonight that you need the word of God in your life. Now, why doesn't somebody want the meat and the milk of the word? Why would it be so? Well, Paul tells us why. Because they're carnal people. What's that mean? It's they're physical people. They're only physical people. They're carnal people. They're people about the flesh. They're people that are content to only have what God made possible on day three. And they're run by their stomachs. And they don't know that they're a spirit, that they could be a spirit man. And if they are indeed a Christian, that they are a spirit person. And they need that food spiritually to be poured out into their life on a regular basis. They're carnal people. The Bible tells us that they're motivated by their stomachs. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1, Paul put it this way. And brothers, and I, brothers, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. So there's the carnal person that does not even receive the word at all. There's the baby Christian that remains kind of a carnal. They're spiritual. They they have a spiritual life, but they're so carnal and they haven't given place to the word that Paul would tell them, look, I couldn't even give you. I couldn't even give you the great deep stuff of the word. I wanted to get into some major heavy news, duper, super cool stuff that was going to feed the soul, feed feed your life. And he says, I couldn't even do it. You know why? Because you were carnal. You were carnal and you were just motivated by your stomach. You're still carnal. You're, You're carnal. You're a carnal person if you're only focused on the essential of physical food. Well, I'm not focused on food all day. Well, you go to work to make money so that you can buy food and put it on your table. And you're focused on that and focused on that and focused on that to the exclusion of receiving ultimately what you really need in your life, which is the spiritual food of God's word. Amen? I want you to receive this so bad tonight. Once you become a spiritual person, you become focused on your need for spiritual food. And from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, where does this partaking, this consuming of spiritual food begin? Where does it begin in our lives as people? It begins when we hear the word. Someone brings the word to us. Someone who is spiritual and has the word brings that word of God to us and we hear it. And we begin to receive it. And Paul tells us what happens when we hear the word and we receive it for what it is. Faith rises. Faith comes by hearing and what? Hearing by the word of God. And what happened to the Thessalonians? 
the word became effective in their life because they received it for what it is in truth, the very word of God. So when we hear it and we receive it for what it is in truth, the very word of God, it becomes effectual in a person's life. And that's where it begins. That's the beginning of kind of the spiritual life. And you become a spiritual person. Now, how is it that you become a spiritual person by virtue of this spiritual food? In obeying the gospel, in obeying what this spiritual food says. In obeying the gospel, the word of God, it commands us to consume and partake of another spiritual food. So we receive the spiritual food of the word, and in consuming that, obeying it, that word commands us to partake of another spiritual food. Are you with me? What's that? What's that? That takes us to John chapter 6. Jesus was, pre- was preaching and teaching, and he preached to, the, to, the, to a large, large crowd. And it got to the point on this particular day that the crowd became very large, and they weren't going to be able to send the people away to have them fed. And so it was kind of a quandary. It was kind of a question what was going to happen. You know the story. What happened? A boy, a young boy, gives his lunch. Amen. One young boy brought a lunch to the teaching of Jesus. And Jesus took this lunch. It was five loaves of bread and two fish. And he took this lunch and he gathered the disciples and he told the people to sit down on the green grass It was made possible on day three. Amen. (laughs) He told the people to sit on the green grass. He will lead me beside. He will lead me to green pastures. He will lead me beside still waters. The Lord is my shepherd. Amen. 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 He set them down on the grass. He divided the food. He divided the five loaves and he began to feed and distribute the food across according to those disciples. And they fed a whole multitude with this one lunch, five loaves and two fish. It was an incredible thing. So much food was left over that the Bible tells us that there was 12 baskets full of food left over and everybody had their fill. What's that about? Each disciple got a basket full of food. (laughs) Thanks for helping. Thanks for helping. Thanks for helping. When you serve the Lord, God's going to take care of you. Amen. Physically and spiritually. Right after that, Jesus went over to the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee as we know it. And the story continues the next day that there was a crowd of people that followed him across the lake. They wanted to make him king. They wanted to make Jesus king. Why? This guy can make food. Right? If this guy can make food, then he's our king. It's a natural thing. So they follow him over 
to the other side. And they come to Jesus. And in John chapter 6, verse 25, you'll see it on the screen. It says this. This is what they said to, this is what they said to Jesus. They said, Rabbi, when did you come here? <laughs> I love this. You know what they're saying? Like, fancy meeting you here, right? No, 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 no. They followed him over there. Rabbi, when did you come over here? We didn't. Wow, this is what a surprise to find you over here. Now, the next verse is a dead giveaway that Jesus knew exactly what was going on. Amen? Verse, 20, verse 26. Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Busted. They were busted. They were busted. Guys, listen, you followed me over here because you ate of the loaves and you're here for another free lunch. And I can see right through you because I'm the son of God. I can see right through you. So here's what I want to tell you, people. And if you're here tonight and you would fall into this category, and I think at one time or another, most of us would fall in this category. So I'm speaking to everyone here. If you fall into this category, this is what Jesus would tell you. And he would speak it right to the very center of your mind and your heart and your soul tonight. Verse 27. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting. To everlasting. So the question becomes this. What are you laboring for? What are you seeking and what are you laboring for in your life? There's a food that endures. There's a food that's everlasting. It's spiritual, and it's absolutely essential to life. Just as food that was brought forth and made possible by what God did on day three, and that that's absolutely essential to your physical life, there's a food that does not perish that you don't have to put preservatives on, that you don't have to spice up in any particular way. It's just great food right from the get-go, and it's food that you absolutely need in your life, and it endures to everlasting. And here's the, here's the kicker. And God wants you to have it. And God wants you to have it. So the question is this, what is it? What is this other food that we're supposed to consume? What is it? Well, if you keep reading down through John chapter 6, you find out. You find out. Now, I don't know if this is totally cool, what I'm going to do right now. But I'm going to quote myself, amen, from my book. Is that okay? Is that okay? I'm going to quote myself. So just forgive me, you know, because I thought it was pretty good, you know, handling of this particular passage in my book in chapter 2, okay? You are not only a physical body. You have a soul that will continue to exist into eternity. And what will become of your soul? 
The answer to that question is also that you must feed your soul and your spirit. Well, what will you feed your soul and your spirit so that you may live? Jesus tells us in John chapter 6 that he is the bread of life. He is exactly what your spiritual life needs, what your spirit needs to live. In fact, this bread of life is what you need to have spiritual life in the first place. If you eat of the bread of life, you will have spiritual life and you will live forever. And Jesus makes it crystal clear for his hearers. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. John chapter 6, verse 53, you see it on the screen. Make no mistake what Jesus says. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, what? You have no life in you. No meaning none. Well, I want to have life. I want to have life. Well, then you must partake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? What's it mean? I'm going to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus? This is hard to understand. Well, guess what? You're not alone because if you read John chapter 6, that's exactly what the crowd said that followed him over to the other side. This is a hard saying. And they left and they left and the crowds just dispersed. So much so that the text tells us that Jesus looked at the disciples and said, are you guys leaving too? He turned to the 12 and he said, are you guys going to go too? And it was Peter who said, Jesus, you alone have the words of eternal life. Where would we go? Where would we go? What's it mean? It's not really feeding upon a dead body of Christ, a physical body of Christ. And this is what maybe pops into your head. And you say this, well, this looks like Christianity advocates some type of a cannibalism. It's not a dead Christ that we need to feed upon, but on the death of Christ. Who is now alive. His sacrificial death is mine when it is appropriated to my life in faith, believing upon him and the work of his death that he worked upon the cross for my salvation. When I feed upon his death, it becomes life to me. When his death is appropriated to me, it, make, it becomes life to me. Here Jesus portrays eating as the appropriation of his death, what he did in dying for you. You appropriate that by faith to your own life. And he appropriates that to us in our hearing as as an act of eating. Now, what is significant about that? Because it was an act of eating that was disobedience in the garden in chapter 3. Remember what what God said. He said, of all the trees of the garden you you, you can eat, But of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat. For if you eat of that tree, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So what is God saying? Jesus is saying this. There there was an act of disobedience. The, The act of disobedience was eating. And I find it amazing that it's an act of eating that is obedience to the gospel. Amen? Be a rebel for God and eat the Lord Jesus Christ. 
appropriate it for yourself. Now, what does that mean? It means simply this, and I'll explain it to you physically. I can't eat your lunch for you. If I eat your lunch, guess what? It's appropriated to my body. And I don't need two lunches. Trust me. <laughs> but you need to eat. And so that's why you, there's no grandfathered into the faith. There's no, well, I'm into the faith by osmosis. You either sat down at the table and you partook of Christ and you believed upon him with your heart and you consumed by faith upon him in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in your own life personally that life came to you and it was appropriated because you made that decision to do it. An act of eating brought death. It's an act of eating that brings life. So what's, what's, the, what's, what's the question? What's the answer? The question is, what are you eating? Are you only feeding upon the physical? Or are you feeding upon Christ? Are you feeding upon the word of God, every word of God that proceeds from his mouth? You need to see what God made possible on day three of creation week. The food that was brought forth from the grasses, the herbs, the fruit trees is what you feast on for physical life. But we need to be reminded of what we need and what is essential for spiritual life. Two things, the word of God, you'll see it on the screen, the word of God and the son of God. The word of God and the son of God. That's what we need to eat. That's what we need to feast upon. I want to close with a story. It's a true story of Louis Zamperini. This last week, I was in Southern California, and last Sunday, we were at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, the original Calvary Chapel, amen? And we were going, to, going out to lunch with the pastor of the church, Pastor Brian Burgers. And we've had a few meals with him before, and so we were going to go out and have a, have a lunch after the service. So he approached me after the service, and, and it was funny, too, because he preached on prayer and fasting. <laughs> and so he said, hey, we're going out. Let's go out to get some lunch. And I said, well, is that going to affect your fasting? He said, no, that starts tomorrow. So this will <laughs> so be the last supper. <laughs> So he said, but me and Cheryl, we want Mexican food. And he says, do you know of any good Mexican restaurants? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm from Florida. You're the Californian. You grew up here. You went to Huntington Beach High School. You're the pastor at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. You're asking, and I didn't say this to him, okay? But I'm thinking this. You're asking me for a good Mexican restaurant? Well, it just so happened that I knew of a good one. Because Greg Laurie had posted on his Instagram account of a great Mexican restaurant in Newport Beach called El Cholo. And, and I said, perfect, we got, I got just the place. It's El Cholo in Corona Del Mar. We'll meet you there in a half an hour. Because they had their dog, their dog goes to church with them. So they had to take the dog, and he, he hangs out back in the back, the back offices. 
We have dogs that come to our church too, so we're, we're, we're right up there with the best of the best. I don't care what anyone says, oh, well, South Coast are a small church, but we're, as far as dogs, we're right up there. <clears throat> and thanks to Sandy and Darren. Never knew I'd weave that into the service, but it's done. So we met him at El Cholo, and um, on the back of the menu, this restaurant is, this is a new branch of their restaurant, but the original restaurant was opened in 1923 in Los Angeles, California. And over the years, it became so popular that they expanded to other locations throughout Southern California. So we were, I think it's like their, their newest one. They're in, in Newport Beach. On the back of the... Uh, yeah, El Cholo. <clears throat> Got to have a picture, right? So next time you're in Southern California, where are you going to go? Besides In-N-Out Burger, El Cholo. Okay. <clears throat> On the back of the menu, there's a story that was written by Louis Zamperini. And it's a touching story, and I, I want to read it to you. And I felt like I should read it to you, and I... I didn't have it. And so I went on the internet and I'm looking, El Cholo menu story. Certainly it's somewhere on the internet. Searched and searched, Googled, Googled, Googled until I came up with nothing. So what did I do? I called El Cholo. And I said, can you take a picture of the back of the menu and text it to me? And the guy at El Cholo at the Western Avenue the original one, took a picture and texted a picture of the back of the menu to me so that I could read this to you tonight. This is Louis Zamperini writing of his experience with El Cholo. As a teenager, I had just returned from the 1936 Berlin Olympics and enrolled at USC. While registering there, an all-American football player, Ernie Pinkert, invited me to dinner. We drove up to a small home-like restaurant on Western Avenue. The sign read, El Cholo. Ernie said, I guarantee you'll like it. And besides, this place is a kind of a hangout for USC athletes. As we entered, I was introduced to Mr. Salisbury, a handsome and dignified gentleman. I was immediately impressed with his knowledge of USC sports, plus his friendly and cordial welcome. Before I could look at the menu... Ernie said, bring us two number ones and two Cokes. I will never forget the smell as the cheerful waitress brought the food and said, plate hot, don't touch. I will always remember the first taste. I was in a whole new culinary world. I frequented El Cholo often, even though I could hardly afford 35 cents for dinner. I soon became a good friend of Mr. Salisbury and his family. He even trusted me to care for baby Ron. El Cholo became a second home to me and always has been. During World War II, I survived a plane crash in the South Pacific, only to spend 47 days in an open raft, fighting off hunger, thirst, shark attacks, and enemy fire. You have not seen Unbroken. And you can bear it. I recommend it. Fighting off 
hunger, thirst, shark attacks, and enemy fire. I would often and vividly remember my visits to El Cholo. The memory of that, especially of having a full stomach, haunted me for the next two years as a POW in Japan. Following my repatriation and subsequent homecoming, I hurried back to El Cholo, hoping that nothing had changed, nothing had. I was greeted with open arms as Mr. Salisbury said, Welcome home, Louie. You're our guest for dinner. Nothing had changed. Soon, El Cholo's reputation began to spread and through necessity has branched out to accommodate the Southland. But even after 70 years of dining here, 70 years he ate there, I find it remarkable that El Cholo provides the same friendly welcome and superb meals in a cheerful, home-like atmosphere. And I still have nostalgic memories from the 30s and 40s. Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini. Now, Charles, why do you tell the story? Because it struck me that while he was trying to survive and undergoing that physical need of food, his mind was drawn to those pleasant memories and those pleasant meals at this Mexican restaurant in Southern California. And what we need to do, what we need to have in our lives is a desire for the word of God, that meal of that spiritual food. And I find, I find it true today that there are people who are not physically in Zamperini's position, but spiritually. Spiritually lost at sea, fighting off attacks of the enemy fighting off shark attacks, hungering and thirsting for none other than the Word of God and the Son of God. And so I tell you that Jesus, our God, he waits with open arms to welcome you to the family of God, to the home of God, to where you need to be, receiving that picture of what was brought forth on day three, the physical food, the spiritual food that you and I need for life.